This talk, called Deep in the Mountains 4, was given by Joan Sutherland at Vallecitos Mountain Ranch on July 5th, 2013. Good eternity, Bodhisattvas. <laughs> Walking here through the wind that blows from one end of the universe to the other, from before the beginning of time to after the end of time, and right through this room. This week, um, we've been talking in a funny way about the trikaya, the three bodies, all week. We began talking about the nirmanakaya through self and story, the nirmanakaya being the body or world of form and karma, the world of stuff. And then we talked about the sambhogakaya yesterday as the dream, the great dream of the world. And uh, today, I'm embarking on the fool's errand of talking about the Dharmakaya, (laughs) which is the vastness, the field of fields, the great mysterious. I thought uh, it might be easier to talk about it in terms of its near analog, which is our own bodhi, our own awakening. As I talk about these bodies, these realms of perception and experience, uh, I want to be clear that I'm not in any way suggesting that we replace one with another. Yesterday the idea wasn't to replace the nirmanakaya world of stuff with the dream world. And today I'm not suggesting that we replace either or both of those with the dharmakaya, the vast empty world because all of them are equally real and all of them are equally present in everything and every moment. So the idea is to keep opening ourselves to the three bodies and their various manifestations in our own lives and in the world around us. Because the more that we can include all of them simultaneously, the more real our perceptions are, the closer they are to the way things actually are. So this isn't an exercise in replacement. This is an exercise in endless enlargement and addition and um, depthifying. So the revelation of the Dharmakaya is an absolute thing. It doesn't come in pieces or parts, although we might have tastes of it for a brief moment or a long time before we experience the whole. But it is in itself a one whole thing. To experience the Dharmakaya is as though you had seen only yellow and red and all of a sudden you saw blue. It's that utter and absolute a transformation in our way of perceiving the world. The whole international 
Dharma um, conglomerate enterprise (laughs) is based, or at least used to be based, on the belief that through practice we could have that experience of the Dharmakaya. And even though our experience of it doesn't always happen in the context of practice, it can happen anywhere, anytime in our lives, I kind of think it's because of practice that it does. Sometimes it it seems to occur spontaneously for people, but that's a karmic circumstance that has to do with previous practice and previous lives. So... um, Until someone figures out the magic way around that, there isn't really a way around that, I'm sorry to say. And that must be important. That must matter. It must matter that we go through the long um, and winding road of practice before we have this stunning and final revelation of the Dharmakaya. It seems to me that um, each of us has our own karma, we have our own faculties, we have our own ways of experiencing the world. And so it's never made sense to me that there would be one rigid way that would apply to everybody for experiencing the Dharmakaya. And I think that's what makes um, our way so beautiful and so difficult, which is that we're kind of handcrafting it for each person. You know, um, we're we're discovering together each person's way of coming to the Dharmakaya and seeing it um, at least as much uh, of an art as a science. And I think that's one of the reasons we're so important to each other. Um, there's an old Sanskrit word, kalyanamitra, which is um, a spiritual friend. And we certainly are spiritual friends to each other. And when we are handcrafting our way toward awakening, uh, each of us as individuals and us together as a group, those kinds of friendships are tremendously important. And the viewpoints of people who have um, seen a bit of the Dharmakaya and can suggest that one course of action might be more efficacious than another in terms of getting there. So um, to the extent that we can stay together and continue to walk the way together, I think that that is um, a good and a helpful thing. It's pretty common to have feelings of... um, discouragement about having that experience of dharmakaya and um, feelings of doubt about whether it's possible. And I want to suggest that that, um, when those feelings arise, it's kind of like the nirmanakaya um, telling you that it wants to be your only bird. Um, Ian Ian Frazier tells a wonderful story about being up in North Dakota and having this flock of crows follow him around and after a while finally they say to him hey human, we want to be your only bird (laughs) and that that world of um, discouragement and, um, and doubt and worry, anxiety about it is, you know, kind of 
believing the crows when they say that they can be your only bird and all you have to do is not think about the eagles, you know, or the hummingbirds and they'll take care of you. So please think about the eagles and the hummingbirds and and don't allow anybody to convince you that they're your only bird because I promise you that they're not. Um, and the other thing, too, I think, is that we live in, in a world where, you know, people become shamans in a weekend, you know. But we have this sense of instant fix and, and um, lots of book titles to, to prove it. And we're, we're dealing in a tradition that, for better or worse, does think in terms of kalpas, you know, does think in terms of lifetimes. And um, whatever happens in this lifetime it matters, it counts, um, because of this long arc of things. And so I know that it's hard, but I would encourage you to take heart from the generations and generations that this has already flowed, this river of Dharma, through the world, and that it will continue to flow, and you along with it, for a long time to come. So I mentioned that it might be um, a little bit easier to approach Dharmakaya through its, its near analog, which is, um, which is our own Bodhi. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Bodhi is a Sanskrit word, um, that, and, and Pali word too, that means um, to wake or awakening. And sattva, as in bodhisattva, sattva is a state of being and therefore comes to mean um, the essence of a being. So a bodhisattva is someone whose essence of being is awakening. That's kind of nice, isn't it? And that's, of course, true of every being you know, in the world. Everything in the world has the essence of awakening. Um, so a bodhisattva is a, a human being, a human person, who has chosen to orient their life around that fact to make it conscious and to make it the center of things that orientation around the fact of the awakening of each of us and all of us and of all things that bodhi is dharmakaya within us so never fear you already have it It's already here. It's not somewhere else far away, and you have to climb a very long ladder up a very long beanstalk to get to it. You have it inside your own consciousness. Bodhi is that part of consciousness that is dharmakaya. So notice that, again, we're talking about parts We've talked about parts all week long, that the self is made of parts, that the trikaya are each parts of both our perception and the reality of things. And bodhi is already a part of our consciousness. So it's not about going out somewhere and getting something and bringing it home, you know, like a mammoth or something. Um, It's about uncovering that which is already part of our consciousness. And one of the um, amazing and beautiful and full of potential things about Bodhi as well as Dharmakaya is that it is a non-karmic realm. So if what 
in our consciousness gets between us and our own, our very own Bodhi. Let's just take a moment. That is your birthright, that very Bodhi, your birthright already here. We are born with awakening. We grow with awakening. That is what that means, that, that awakening is Bodhi. So then all the karmic stuff gets in the way, and we lose touch with that. We forget it. You know, you can see it in a child's eyes. You can see still that connection to Bodhi. And you can also watch, you know, sometimes as, as it is dimmed. So if it is that, if it's the karmic stuff that we all have that gets in the way, that obscures that, then our practice becomes, I am sorry to say, about clearing away those obscurations, working with that karmic stuff. There's no way around it. You can short-circuit it for a while. You can make a leap into, into Bodhi. Um, but you always have to come back and do the work, unless you just want to be a really awake jerk. <laughs> so... Um, Connected to that part of us that does the karmic work of clearing the obscurations, the sitting, 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 koan, 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 walking, walking, walking stuff. Connected to that is our view of the bodhisattva vow as having something to do with clearing those karmic obscurations for others and for the world, right? It's, it's about doing things to relieve the sufferings of others out of our own intense experience of our own suffering. So that's the view of the bodhisattva we tend to have, the one who does that. Um, in, a, in a poem called The Broken Tower, Hart Crane has a a beautiful unintentional description of that. He says, um, And so it was that I entered the broken world to join... Oh, I've forgotten it. The visionary company of love. Yeah, but to... to, to that, that's all I remember. Yeah. <laughs> it's the something, to something the company of love. Hold on. And so it was I entered the broken world to trace the visionary company of love, its voice an instant in the wind. I sure will. And so it was I entered the broken world to trace the visionary company of love, its voice an instant in the wind. So that's our usual view of the bodhisattva vow, the bodhisattva task. What I want to say today is that there is another equally important part of that way of being, that vow, that task. And it has to do with the non-karmic nature of bodhi. If out of our own understanding of our suffering we are moved to help um, other people not feel suffering, other beings, all beings, not just human beings. Um, Also, out of our growing connection with Bodhi, as we clear the obscurations away and we begin to see it more directly, it begins to reflect more as a mirror. We're more and more able to reflect that non-karmicness into the world as well. 
we can be a conduit for the non-karmic nature of Bodhi, which is the non-karmic nature of Dharmakaya, into the karmic world. That's also a tremendously important part of the Bodhisattva vow. We are enlarging the possibilities. We are bringing in what was a moment before inconceivable. We're allowing ourselves to be a place where Nirmanakaya, the karmic world, and Dharmakaya, the non-karmic world, can meet and mix. This is one of our offerings through the Bodhisattva vow, to be that place. Not to repudiate Nirmanakaya, not to repudiate the world of stuff and karma in favor of the empty world, the non-karmic world, but to allow them to come together and to mix so that possibilities not previously there suddenly are. What an amazing thing that is. What a remarkable privilege to the extent that we can do that, to be able to do that. So in case you're sitting there feeling like, yikes, (laughs) we have some help with that. And the help comes from right inside of us. And that is another Sanskrit bodhi word, bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is the heart of awakening. And often um, we talk about it as, as the aspiration towards awakening, that the bodhisattva vow is the vow to wake up so that one can help all beings wake up. And that's true. But also it is the way that dharmakaya enters into our hearts and the way our hearts can reflect dharmakaya into the world. And that creates in us, um, say, all the old scriptures, despite what you might think, the great heart of love. That's what it's called, the great heart of love. And that heart is not a heart of love in the way that we usually understand it in Nirmanakaya terms. It is a heart of love that is without compulsion and without attachment because it is a reflection of Dharmakaya. So it doesn't get all sort of mixed up with our stuff, but in some ways reflects from Dharmakaya to Bodhi through our hearts. And it's so deeply connected to our own aspiration. Again, it's not something distant and far away that we have to travel a great distance for. It is the thing that brought every single person into this room. That heart of of awakening, that desire for awakening. And the thing about it is that it connects us to something greater than ourselves. It can change the way we experience longing. Longing has come up this week 
um, a few times, and it seems such an important thing. And we tend to think of longing as, you know, the most deeply personal of things. What could be more intensely personal than my own deepest longing? It comes from someplace so far inside myself. And yet, I want to suggest today that there might be an aspect that isn't arising out of some deep part of ourselves. That longing is an understanding, you know, inchoate or completely formed, that there is something that has a claim on us. And that something is the Dharmakaya. And our longing is our willingness to suffer the awareness that the Dharmakaya has a claim on us and we don't know how to meet it yet. But we're willing to suffer that not knowing how to meet it and to do the hard work of practice, sit, 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 koan, 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 walk, 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 in order to be able to meet that claim happily. And when we have that sense of it, we move from an understanding of the bodhisattva as someone who does good deeds. And I am not for a moment denigrating doing good deeds. Doing good deeds is a great thing. But it enlarges the sense of the bodhisattva from someone who does good deeds, which is still fairly centered in the self, fairly located in the individual person. It moves it to this larger sense of the bodhisattva as that place where dharmakaya is refracted and reflected into the world through consciousness and through our hearts. Like the moon reflected in all the waters of the world when there are no clouds obscuring it. And the promise of the tradition is that to the extent we can take that on, even if it feels like a mystery to us, even if it feels like something we can't yet wrap ourselves around, if we're willing to do that, there is a power, there is a something that will come to sustain us as we do it. We don't have to generate it on our own like good deeds. There is a great power which is called, you know, Buddha nature and all kinds of other things that will support us and sustain us. And, in fact, it's the thing that keeps our bodhisattva vow real. Because without that opening to being a a conduit for dharmakaya into the karmic world. And without that sustenance and support that comes when we, when we make that vow, without that, we're in danger of falling into um, what the, the old texts call the realm of the philosophers and shravakas. And that's the realm of people for whom the bodhisattva vow is largely intellectual. For philosophers, it's theoretical. It's a really nice idea. Um, Shravakas are people who relate to it by following the rules. 
So they think, you know, being a bodhisattva is, is following the list of rules we call vows and precepts. And it is our willingness to see it as something larger than that that opens us up to the full possibility of the vow. And when we do that, our practice, sit, 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 koan, 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 walk, 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 isn't just supporting our vow, isn't just revealing dharmakaya to us so that we can open our vow up to dharmakaya. But it's working the other way, too, where our vow is supporting our practice. We have the support of Buddha nature. We have the support of the universe. We have whatever we want to call it. You can give it any name you want. We have the support and the sustenance of that because of the way we have opened ourselves up. So there becomes a kind of, you know, we would say in our tradition, there's a kind of beautiful feedback loop between the precepts or the vows and the koans. That pretty, you know, pretty soon you're not sure which is which and what's going, doing what, but the whole thing becomes a single project of um, opening consciousness, opening the mind, and opening the heart to Dharmakaya, opening the mind and opening the heart to Nirmanakaya, and allowing those things to mix so that new things can come into the world through us. So I'd like to um, close today on a, on a sort of weird personal note, but I know that this is um, chewy stuff. And I thought maybe if I talked about something really nitty-gritty, that might help with it. Or it might completely obscure the whole thing, I don't know. <laughs> but I've been thinking a lot, a lot, a lot about the Bodhisattva vow these days. And um, it, uh, that thought arising out of a profound dissatisfaction in my own understanding of it and wanting, because of my life and wanting to push it somewhere else, wanting to open it up to something else. And so this is the is, this is a report. This is a very preliminary report of that effort because it's only just begun. But it, it is the wave I'm riding into my retreat time. Um, people have been so kind and said to me so many times in so many different ways, "Please take care of yourself." And when someone says that, I absolutely feel the warmth of that and I receive that warmth and that's what it is for me. It's a moment of of warmth and kindness from another person for which I'm very grateful. And at the same time I have to tell you that I have almost no idea what that means. Please take care of yourself. Out of those four words I don't understand three of them. So that's interesting. You know? And that's the source of my um, interesting dissatisfaction and curiosity about the Bodhisattva vow. It seems to me that the way, one of the ways we think about it, one aspect of the way, ways we think about it in um, 
at least in contemporary Western culture, is we think that if there is a difficulty with it, the knife edge we're walking, in the way that we've been talking all week about knife edges, the knife edge we're walking is between bodhisattva vow on one side and self-care on the other side. Do you know what I mean? And that that's the negotiation we're in. You know, how do I do, how do I do the bodhisattva deal, and yet you know take care of myself? Okay, I, I've come to be profoundly dissatisfied with that as the knife edge, uh, for a lot of reasons. One of which, well, one of which is I don't understand what self care is. That's you know that's another story. Um, but 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 really, it seems to set up an opposition or at least a tension between bodhisattva vow and self-care, right? Like they're, they're, they're sort of, it's a duality and we've got to figure out how to manage the duality. I don't think that's the duality. I don't think that's the, the difficulty. Um, and I'm beginning to wonder if bringing in this idea of the bodhisattva as facing both the nirmanakaya karmic world which, in which action is, um, can be draining, difficult, takes a lot of energy, can create wounds, you know, all that stuff we know because it's a sort of, you know, it's a world with a lot of elbows and sharp edges and, and um, uncertain ground. So if that's on one side, maybe what's on the other side is the sense of the bodhisattva facing toward the Dharmakaya. Um, toward that world that doesn't have those karmic um, interesting elements and and instead has this sustenance this support there's a there's a Taoist saying um, honor the power of the way accept everyone and I used to think that meant the way you honor the power of the way is to accept everyone. But now I'm beginning to wonder if it isn't two simultaneous things. Honor the power of the way and accept everyone. And that's the knife edge. How do you, how do you hold the tension between those two things? How do you, what does it mean to honor the power of the way? Um, Nine times out of ten, it's going to mean if someone's thirsty, give them a cup of water. You know, it does, that doesn't change. But one time out of ten or something, you know, it might mean something else. It might mean the power of the way would cause us to choose not, not responding to the immediate need, not, to re- not responding to the immediate request, because there's a sense of a larger picture. There's a sense of... Uh, responsibility to, in a really good sense, the most beautiful, privileged responsibility to the Dharmakaya, as well as a responsibility to the circumstances in the karmic world. And that's the tension. How to discern that. How to stay alive to the needs of both and not fall either onto the side of the Dharmakaya and too much in emptiness, too far removed from people who are thirsty and need a cup of water. And also not to fall too far into, you know, the ocean of samsara where where we can drown, you know, without some kind of ballast for ourselves. This is a knife edge I understand better 
then take care of yourself. Or it's a way I understand, maybe a more accurate thing to say is, it's a way I understand take care of yourself, different from go get yourself a pedicure, you know. Um, and therefore makes a, you know, a different kind of sense to me, a truer kind of sense. And I, I don't have a resolution to this. I don't have a sort of thunderous, lovely conclusion to this because, as I say, it's the question that carries me out. But um, I'm really interested in it, and I'm wondering if you're interested in it too. And um, I would most welcome any comments or questions you might have. Thank you. in opposition to taking care of yourself because I always thought the Bodhisattva Tao arose from that feeling that interdependence that we are created by our surroundings and our surroundings and we create our surroundings so the way you take care of yourself is by taking care of everything around you and that, that takes care of you in itself it's a I build a good world the world builds me I never thought of oh there's an. Op- I never thought that that was where the opposition was, mm-hmm. and so I. And as you said, I think that the difficulty is having a vision big enough to see how to take care of how that how those mm-hmm. things connect, how that bigger world comes in, and that's the dharma I brought in is yeah. being able to envelop that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I guess what I want to say is now that you've said it. I think that's what we all thought we meant. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was never go get a pedicure, but it, no, it was... It, no, no, I know that. But, but, but it is, you know, sort of tending that heart of, of Dharmakaya mm-hmm. and the vessel that lets it be there. You know? mm-hmm. And I, I feel that, I don't know, when people tell you to take care of yourself, that it's really full of just that, just that feeling and that aspiration. Well, thank you. Well, but I wouldn't have known it unless you said it right now. So. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I, I don't mean to be snide, you know, no, about, about, about self-care, because self-care is obviously an extremely important thing, and it's not just pedicures, you know. It's a lot of really good stuff, like eating well and sleeping and all that, which I get abstractly. <laughs> <laughs> As you were talking um, just now, you saying somewhat flippantly, but seriously, that you don't know what that means, um, I had just been thinking last night on one of our long meditations, walking meditations, about Psyche's journey and Robert Johnson's book on that. And um, because I'd done something earlier in the day where I had invoked that fourth task, and that year seems to fit into that. And the way he talks about it, he's a young analyst, um, he talks about that fourth task is where you say no. You... You pass a beggar and wants you to give him bread, and you say no to that, and you keep saying no in different forms because you're doing absolutely self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll have to reread it again, but mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. You, you know, I love that psychic story, and I, I've taught it a bunch because I think it's so powerful. And and I think in what we're talking about, I think that's a compensatory moment. I think that's a moment where we pull ourselves back from um, too much automatic yes. 
And then I think there's something after that, mm-hmm. that it's an absolutely essential moment. And then part of that, something else happens then where somehow it's neither yes nor no. It's something else entirely. Mm-hmm. And it's not, yeah, it's not the end. Yeah. So you don't think compensation fits in here at all? It fits in where? Joan, I'm curious about um, the lunar countercurrent you talked about yesterday. And if it's only a hallmark of the Sambokakaya, or does it actually have some connection to the Dharma as well? Mm Yeah, um, in terms of the Dharmakaya, one of the things I've I've been spending a lot of time with is um, when when we think of Dharmakaya, we tend to think of a light which contains both light and dark. It's it's a non-dual light. And I'm really interested in what it's like when the Dharmakaya is a a non-dual dark that contains both light and dark. And, and that's a way in which I think the lunar countercurrent thing really, yeah, it, I mean, it, it, it goes everywhere, including into our, our senses of the largest things. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering whether there is a sense of pregnancy. Um, so not a sense of pulling away and something ends, but more there's actually a pregnancy, Mm -hmm. and um, it it will lead to the baby of a new and different way of being a bodhisattva, or a new and different Mm -hmm. way of being a sangha, and Mm -hmm. of learning, Mm -hmm. and because we all don't know what it will be, there are steps that we make that are unusual because we, I mean, at the moment we, we have developed a, a way of practicing and a way of, you know, there are teachings, there are rules, there's all this known that we can follow and it'll get us someplace. But I'm wondering whether this is more this pregnant moment that we're in. And, um, yeah, and so. I always have this feeling, and while we've been sitting here all week long, I have these feelings of jumping off a cliff, and it's always asking me to jump, and I'm sort of, you know, inside of me, obviously, um, um, experimenting with that, and so I, I feel this is where we're at. We're sort of, oh, how, how could I jump? It's, we, we don't know yet how we can jump because we're human. If we jumped off a cliff, we would hurt ourselves. But something is asking us to. And so, somehow we need to grow wings or whatever. We, we're, we're inspired to get creative. And, and so that's feeling. Yeah, and I, and I think maybe trusting that a wind will come up to buoy your journey down. That's that. That's that thing from the world that comes to sustain us yeah, yeah. when we're willing to jump. Yeah. That that happens in the psyche story. She jumps off a cliff, and a wind comes up and then drops her down. Yeah. yeah. 
really grateful for your um, the different perception on base up and down. Really, really grateful. Because um, I've, I've resisted it a lot. I met actually, I believe, in Senator Dharma talk a few months ago about how she thinks maybe she should take them back, you know, or something. You know, she'd have taken them, and I said, well, I the same way. Um, and the bodhicitta, it just always felt like um, rules and, well, I can't do that. I'm not throwing some, you know, big heart of anything. I don't, I don't want to do it for that reason. Now I'm going to listen to your talk again, but it makes it so much easier the way you said it. It takes the work out of it. I don't want to do good deeds. I just, I just don't for doing good deeds' sake. But this, it's, it has its own value, and it's doing, it's doing the work too. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, it, it's calling for me and. It's not calling for me without the, the skills or anything. It's providing it. It's, it's just really feel supportive. It just feels really supportive. And then, then the vows feel true to me. They're not just some... They're just a deeper and, and more doable. Happily. I think one of the themes of this retreat has been... Um, different ways of stepping out of a very constricted sense of self and discovering that there's a freedom in that. And this, what you're describing is another way that that's freer. If, if we think that bodhisattva activity is something we're participating in with the whole world rather than something we're making happen ourselves, that's a very different feeling. And that's just a larger sense of self. Um, I would assume that you know something I don't know. Manjushri has something that I don't have. You know, but I'm thinking, as you say, you don't know, um, and this is something that's been in my mind for the last couple of days, is that um, accepting of the acceptance of that place, like, I, I think that every koan you give to all of us seems to be synchronistically just what we need. Going, how's that happening, you know? But I'm thinking that if, if because of the practice and because of, you know, Manjushri being Manjushri, John Sutherland being John Sutherland, that there is that leaning into that uh, Sambhogukaya where it's flooding in and everything therefore aligns with that. Mm-hmm. And then the territory is very different, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. What we're working with is very different. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what we bring into it doesn't become so black and white, but it's laced with light, it's laced with darkness, it's laced with, you know, black sequence. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's just, the, um, it just gets much wider and bigger. And I'm really interested in that place. And, um, uh, and also accepting that, if that uh, Buddha seed is in all different levels of, um, is there in everybody, everything, every being, Buddha nature pervades everything, then are we just at certain levels of rightness with it, you know, mm-hmm. and then um, uh, feeling it accordingly, you know. And, um, mm-hmm. and when we sit in the, in the presence of a teacher, um, you're bringing, like, the Sambhokakaya right into the room, like, whoosh. Is that kind of where it's at? 
Well, it's a beautiful description of how you're experiencing it. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I think the Sambhogakaya is a really important part of, of it. Yes. Because then we're not in Kansas anymore. Right. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. It seems to me that the Sambhogakaya can carry a message about how to do the deed. Mm-hmm. That, that sometimes um, through practice we get a much sharper discernment that so that the, when we hear the message from whatever level it's coming from um, to inform us to make the beautiful mistake. That's, that's how I understand it. Yeah. I feel like also that it's, um, maybe it's much more kind of common, you know, that everybody runs around having Sambhogakaya experiences all the time. You know, anytime it's not one, not two, anytime there's one thing transformed into another, anytime there's a kind of magical resemblance, anytime you feel a tree branch moving and you can feel it in your arm or, or something like that, you know, any of those things that we have all the time, even in a way... Anytime you learn a new dance step or something like that, and you're dancing to a, to a music, you know, mm-hmm. that's a kind of sambhogakaya thing where you're out of the, you know, the nirmanakaya, or you're out of the realm of I gotta be me. And, <laughs> and a lot of experiences like that kind of loosen loosen those boundaries up. I think yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I guess kind of looping back to the talk a little bit. Thank you. Looping back to the Dharmakaya aspect, um, it feels like the greatest gift, the greatest bodhisattva act or whatever, is to have that Dharmakaya reflected back to oneself and to be so in touch with that in oneself, to have the capacity to kind of, as Ellie's saying, to kind of manifest that in the Sambhogakaya and Nirmanakaya. And so in that sense, my experience of receiving that is like, self-care doesn't even really make sense because as someone practices or I think of you and taking, you know, this time or retreat or whatever, and it's like deepening in that endlessly benefits others. Like it's kind of, of course. Um, Yeah. Well, thank you. And this image kept coming to me from one of my other teachers who was talking about how, um, I'll put it in these words, like living from the Dharmakaya is like living in the mirror. So usually when you carry a bag and your monakaya, it's really heavy. But if you look in the mirror, the bag isn't heavy, it's just lifted. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. light as a feather. Mm-hmm. But it's not choosing Dharmakaya over cause and effect. It's the exact mirror image. Yeah. It's also true yeah. at exactly the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so the, the thing becomes to have those be simultaneous yeah. experiences. Right? Even mirror image at first maybe and then, and then simultaneous. Yeah. yeah. I feel like the person chasing a butterfly. Like I just about have it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know. I just, so if I if I just go fluttering off, just say, just, just save it for later. Um, 
I do feel I do feel attention, and um, and I'm curious about it. Uh, if as I feel the shift, my allegiance to the lunar counter current, which feels like an indication of that is the. For me, it's the, you know, the essence of all of what this practice means, what my kind of, what my vow is, is that invocation. Um, as I feel that shift, which for me is um, no longer managing, no longer forcing, no longer scenario planning, no longer... Um, in the world, um, it actually feels more like me than I've ever felt. Mm-hmm. And the voice that comes, so in terms of self-care, it's the most nurturing thing I've ever, I've ever experienced. It's like it has come together in a way that I can feel the the, the voice as a kind of surge mm-hmm. that comes up from someplace else. Mm-hmm. Not predictable, not um, timely, always. Not when I want it necessarily the words to be there. It comes. In the practice of that, I, I think when I talked to you earlier this week, um, to be in that that much mystery, not knowing. Mm-hmm and turning in that direction can feel like I'm turning away from the world. Even though I'm in, I'm more aware, I'm more alive to it than I feel like I've ever been. So I feel that it's like, but I don't know how to, I, in this, um, I, I don't know How, well, the form that it takes, let me just try this one last piece, but the form that it takes is, for me, is this sort of coming in and out of things that we talked about. So, um, I go, the, the version, in those of you who heard my dream last night of the mouse, the version for most of my life, was a little mouse in the pain room, and mm-hmm. I would run out into the world and do stuff, and then I'd run back, <laughs> and I would take a breath, and I was like, okay, I'm not sure I can do it again, rest, 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 and then I'd go do it again. Um, I would say now what happens is that I'm so unsure of what I'm going to be able to respond to, or what um, I need a lot more time to listen. That? And so what do I tell people while I'm listening <laughs> in solitude? In when I have I'm babbling words that or I just don't have any words. What do I say to people I love? What do I that's the that's the tension I'm feeling. Um, and the unskilled um, 
this the surge can come out feeling like a sword, and and that terrifies me. That much power. So then I pull away, and then I come in, and then I put. So I think it's. Um, I don't know. My question is how. What's the practice of that? What's how to dance with that? Um, that I really can. I have the sense of trusting. I absolutely feel the essence. I mean, feel the and the power of that in the world. Um, but it makes. I haven't. I'm not sure how to express this time or where I am at this time to people that I love, and it, I'm afraid of feeling people feeling like I'm not there, or I'm pulling away, or is that? Yeah. In in this practice, we go through many cycles of deconstruction. And at the bottom of a cycle of deconstruction, when everything we used to do, we're not doing anymore in some area, you know, um, or everything that made sense to us doesn't make sense anymore, it can feel like we're a newborn cult trying to stand up for the first time. You know, that sort of totally gangly, uncoordinated thing. And that's, that's just part of it. I mean, we're genuinely deconstructing old habits and ways of doing things and and beliefs and convictions and certainties and all of that and and so we're going to endlessly not endlessly but we're going to go through this series of cult-like moments you know when we're trying to stand up again and so that's that's just part of it and i'm wondering if there's a way for you to you know, without sort of like without too much information, you know, somehow conveying some of that to people you love. I I, I don't know if it's okay for me to do, but being in partnership with someone where we're both sort of getting up on those legs. Right. Um, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is it's if. If something is spoken that comes right from that place that reveals it, it's then there's an oh, you know, you're attending that place that I want to attend, and that's beautiful. But then, then there's there's a gift being exchanged. You know, it's not, it's not just you taking away something. When you're talking with people who aren't also, you know, in, in, in the practice, it might take a few times to figure out the way to do that. You might not get it right the first time, you know. And so I guess I would encourage you to believe that the people who love you really love you mm-hmm. and, and that they'll stay with it while you figure out how to say what it is that's happening and and just keep trying until you seem to find the right way to do it or the way that seems most helpful to them I'm very very um, excited and very curious about the expression that you're going to hear yeah. and I do feel like 
um, I and I'm committed to it. And I do believe that it's something that I want to do in the world. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that means. I'm not saying as in saved, but I do want to, to be able to express that. And I can feel little glimmers of the potential. Can I just say one little thing about that type because they're very kindred <laughs> with that. And um, I found myself saying to somebody recently, but it's not, I was trying to find the words, and I realized that it wasn't the words, it was the place that they're spoken from that I wanted to shift. Mm-hmm. And actually, a tremendous relief to realize just that much. It's like, oh! It, and I have no idea how that person received that. I haven't heard back from them. <laughs> 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 I just trying to say, I, I don't really have words and Can you say, shifting from what place to what place? Can you describe that? Things are coming, but they're not quite it, but I could... They would be words rather than, and if I tried to speak them from, it's quite a trembly place. It's. slow because otherwise I'll tumble into habit mm-hmm. and I'll have to just mm-hmm. tremble and feel the wall mm-hmm. and not have a clue and I dare do it with a lot of people mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I also In that and in that place of the shift or the potential for the shift, I mean, yeah. I I I feel it like um, you know it's it, uh, as when I'm saying this sort of surge up of, of from you know something that's a much bigger place that if I'm listening or 
larger field that I'm listening to. If in that fear I stop it, it's just, it's like, it just burns mm -hmm. right here. And I can't. You know, to have the courage, when it's that frightening of like what to do with that. How to, if you don't dare, you know, to, it's so important to say, and it's even more important to say, <laughs> and yet having, not having the words, the expression. <laughs> um, so mostly what I do is end up touching people. That's, yeah. I mean, I, I just like, yeah. <laughs> That might be the truest thing. Yeah, yeah, and that also, you know, that's love. Mm -hmm. So then when you touch and I feel the love, there's no word needed. That, that's what I was just thinking, actually, when you were talking, when you want to say something to somebody. The love, when the love comes out, they, they understand that you love them, and that's really... All anybody wants to hear, anyways, ever. <laughs> <laughs> On some level, I mean, there is suddenly, ah, and then everything else can be sorted out. No? Well, that's the that's this trust in the sorting out. I think that's the not knowing it all ahead of time, not mm -hmm. having mm -hmm. you said something like not having the whole package figured out, mm -hmm. which is quite it's just a great, it's very helpful. But trusting that you'll figure, you'll sort it out together. Mm -hmm is the most beautiful mm -hmm. manifestation of what it is that we are living. Tomorrow, my thought during this time would be that, that we would just have a, a, an open discussion so that you could bring any questions, the things that are most important or precious to you um, or the things you most are burning to, <laughs> to talk about, um, have, have a chance to, to do that tomorrow. Um, I, th I think I, I just want to close this conversation by saying... Um, because, because of the urgency of the world of karma and form, I think it can sometimes feel to us as though we're betraying something or being disloyal to something if we um, consider the possibility of dharmakaya. You know, it's like we're, we're leaving the tough stuff in the dust and we're escaping somewhere else. And so that's why I keep saying it's not a matter of substituting one for the other. That's a deep spiritual pathology to subsidize dharmakaya. Uh, to substitute, substitute, <laughs> substitute dharmakaya for nirmanakaya. Um, but it is only being more realistic to include it, because it is real, because it is true, because it is already here. Even in our crankiest nirmanakaya moments, dharmakaya is still present, and so all we're doing is moving into reality. When we, when we include it. We're betraying nothing. We're actually, as I was trying to say before, opening up more possibilities. Please, you know, please consider that there is no, um, there's no betrayal or escape here. There's actually a very 
risky move. And I think, you know, with some of the things that Piper said and other people say, speak to the risk of including it, but it's a beautiful risk. And it's a, um, it's a generous risk. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.